0: You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to We Are Libertarians, where our goal is to help you sound smarter while talking to your friends. We examine current events from a libertarian perspective while treating modern politics with all the irreverence it deserves. We toss out the screaming heads and put people before political parties and give context to the news to make you think. I'm Chris Spangle, and this is a special series on We Are Libertarians called The Swamp Explained. Uh, My co-host for this series is Rob Cortell, a 45-year fly on the wall in Washington, D.C. Rob has worked for Republican presidential campaigns, government agencies like the EPA, and has been confirmed by the Senate to the U.S. Federal Maritime Commission. He's also been a candidate for Congress and Senate, and given his experience and iconoclastic viewpoints, Rob gives us great insight into the swamp that makes up our nation's capital. We're always taking your questions uh, we, we'd love questions at editor at wearelibertarians.com. For Rob, if you have questions about how Washington, D.C. works, please send those along. We have a few today that we'll answer. Uh, so first and foremost, Rob, how are you doing today?
1: Uh, doing great. I'm actually today coming to you from uh, the Chesapeake Bay on an island uh, I've been coming to since I was about five years old. It's called Gwynn's Island, and it's a very remote part of the bay, uh, the lower uh, western Shore, uh, of Virginia, about forty-five miles from Williamsburg, and I'm sitting out here looking at the a lovely scene of water and and a few clouds and and uh, a nice temperature
0: and uh, <laughs> dreading the winter. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds sounds lovely. Yeah, I I have quite the similar view. I have a retention pond out the back door of my house here, so uh, <laughs> just looking at that lovely view and, and on you know, this beautiful Sunday. Well.
1: Fortunately, your your retention pond is that not down in North Carolina where a lot of those are pigs, pig ponds. <laughs> yeah. And they have all been overwhelmed by the uh, two hurricanes that have come their way in the last couple weeks. So,
0: yeah, it is of, uh, the you know, the wind stuff. I don't know about you. So, so one of the reasons that I love doing this series and talking to you is that you can give me a perspective that, uh, you know, I am filled. I'm surrounded by libertarian millennials. And so I like <laughs> <laughs> you're not a libertarian millennial. Uh, you're a libertarian-leaning baby boomer. I would say. <laughs> uh, yeah, and- I, but I am. You know, I am a
1: registered Republican, but I don't vote for them all. Right. So so yeah. and, and you you have to admit, Chris. You know, in in my in my day life, I hang out with an awful lot of millennial. Um, semi libertarian semi left wingers etc in the technology industry so
0: yeah you have it gives a, pers- me a good perspective yeah that's exactly why I like doing the shows that you give me perspective because you yeah, you have the you. the wisdom of age Fun. and also the uh, the uh, iconoclastic viewpoints and so uh, so first I'm gonna I'm gonna ask about the weather and then I'm gonna ask about politics in the 60s specifically <laughs> But it seems to me, so my birthday is September 9th, and every year it kind of turns around my birthday, but this year it was in the 90s till almost late October. I, yeah. I The weather does, and, and maybe it is by virtue of climate change, uh, or maybe it's just the weird cycle that we're in, because it goes through these decade cycles that are kind of odd, but it seems to me that the weather is changing from what I knew as a kid but I don't. I don't think I have enough data points to necessarily say if that's true or not. Hmm. So, what do you think? Interesting. Uh, gee, you know, non-empirically, um,
1: the weather is changing, and um, I see it down here. So, uh, I am about eight feet above sea level, nine feet above sea level, and uh, my property, as I say, abuts the water. Uh, I have about six acres here at the end of this island, and I am looking at. Uh, half of my yard being under uh, a quarter to an inch of water um, because of the high tides. And we are having more and more high tides than I ever recalled uh, in the early days. And I've been coming to this Island, as I had said earlier, for almost uh, probably close to 65 years, almost my entire life. And so, you know, uh, anecdotally, it feels like it's changing. Um, We have had very mild winters. Um, Of course, Washington is on a cusp. This region's on a cusp, so you can never tell. But you know, um, uh, empirically, they say it is changing. And I think uh, this—the week before last, there was an interesting report out of the Trump administration, which essentially acknowledged (laughs) that. uh, And they don't—I don't think they use climate change. They use changing climate. I tell you a story about that in a minute, but. Uh, they acknowledge that this is all happening, but it's too late to do anything about it. So we why change course, essentially? Um, but uh, so I, I don't know if that's kind of where your question is
0: going. Yeah, uh, because if, if you go to a place like – so I've gone to St. Augustine my whole life. Um, I've yeah. lived in the same place my whole life. And if you go to a place like Roanoke if, every year for 65 years, you kind of see over time yeah. – Certain things start to change some yeah. of those benchmarks, like those why those waters are higher during the rising tide. And so I don't know. I, yeah. I have noticed this trend with Republicans and you are a former you're one of the r- original employees of the EPA. I mean, that was your. your Absolutely. First- I was I began
1: working there when I was when, when it first opened its doors. I was a student in Houston at Rice and uh, was an intern uh, at the regional office that opened, uh, you know, in its very first year.
0: So if you want to hear more about Rob's background, that first series, uh, first episode in the series sometime, I think, around March was uh, a lot lot about that. But yeah, I've noticed that Republicans. So I've been tuning into Rush Limbaugh lately just to kind of Uh I'll I'll tune into Limbaugh, tune into Hannity, I'll tune into Alex Jones, see what these people are saying. And I have noticed, I heard Al, I heard um, Rush say the other day, you know, the climate is changing, but we don't know if it uh, is man-made. And that is a far cry from about five years ago when it was, this is just yeah. a complete hoax. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, and I think uh, it's very
1: hard, you know, it's hard to deny most of this. Um, that issue of, of man-made, um, and, you know, from the scientist standpoint, it actually... Uh, seems to be settled more and more um, that humans, and you know, think about how many billion people there are on this planet, and all of the output and all of the industrial uh, activity it takes to support all of humanity. And it would be insane to think that we are not having an impact on climate. You know, we see our impact on the face of the planet itself, you know, the things we move and the things we build. So uh, it would make just common sense
0: and uh, just yeah the complete you know, the complete change of the beef industry and that that's effect on on you know not not just the cow farts but also just the land that it takes to support that but then yeah you start burning all of the palm trees to get palm oil in Indonesia and some of these other places and then then lo and behold you go up to to see video of the North Pole and it's got soot all over it and that's what's heating up yeah. that's what's accelerating all this so yeah I mean I don't, I don't, I don't know much about climate change, but there does seem to be a, a, well, and, and we sense are uh, we
1: that. are a very close, short distance here to uh, the Virginia Institute of Marine Science. My wife is on their advisory board, and uh, in fact, when we were um, building this property here, we went to them for a forecast, and their forecast was that uh, in the next uh, uh, fifty years, and I wanted to build a property that my children and grandchildren. Uh, could use. Uh, In the next 50 years, it's going to rise by X number of inches. So, you know, you really have to buttress yourself. And then the other thing you have to think about is all these people who can't do anything about it whatsoever. So just south of here is uh, Norfolk, which is right on the water. And the military has huge facilities there. Um, About um, a year ago, I was invited to attend a conference um, put on by the military on they could not call it climate change. It was called uh, the the effect of changing climate on military readiness and support. And there was an, a holdover, uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense, a woman who was very, very good, who who pointed out that use of that phrase, uh, changing climate. And, um, and, and the military um, has essentially been forbade for ideological reasons in the administration to be able to, to publicly uh, talk about and um, and and make plans around what uh, they know is happening, which is that their facilities are threatened by the rising tides, uh, and in Norfolk the tides go over the seawall um, and flood the streets periodically far more than they used to. With a Similar effect down in Miami, and uh, some of these cities have the wealth inherently to be able to deal with that, but, but not all do, you know, if you're an Island out somewhere in the Pacific and you're gradually being swamped one day, there's going to be no Island and you don't have an alternative. So
0: Venice, uh, Venice, for instance, 150 days out of the year, they have to put up ramps, walking ramps, yeah, because there's just, right. because now but there's I do nowhere think, to walk.
1: But I do think this is a military, you know, this is a defense issue and they recognize that five or 10 years ago. I, you know, of all the institutions in Washington that, that uh, don't get enough due uh, for reasons of, of their inherent worth. I, I think the military is one of those. They, My experience over the years, and remember, I, I came of age during Vietnam, and so everybody sort of hated the military, and, and a lot of my friends and others who were vets came back, and you know they were kind of reviled because the war was so reviled. Um, today, people have a very different attitude, and the military itself is really one of the most uh, – Uh, they're one of the most uh, self-critical in a positive way organizations I've ever seen. And so they really take seriously issues like climate change. You know, they, they have to worry about whether they can get supplies to the ships or the ships in the docks or whether the docks are going to disappear all of those kinds of things. So uh, I do think that's one of the inherent contradictions um, uh, between the ideological part of the Trump administration and sort of the rational part. And then, uh, and then uh, likewise, the, uh, you know the swamp, uh, which a lot of the military would be considered the swamp because you know these guys spent their careers developing an expertise and they they do it on behalf of their country and 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 they're not worried about ideology. They just worry about outcomes. So,
0: so let's uh, let's break out and let's talk about some of the uh, more sadder subjects. To be honest, um, yesterday yeah. there was a tragedy in Pittsburgh. Where was it 11 people? I yeah. think I saw a lot of people killed at a uh, number
1: injured. A, yeah. Yeah. At sure. a bris,
0: where it was at a synagogue. It was a child naming ceremony, an infant naming ceremony. And uh, a gunman walked in and this person had um, a profile on a social network called Gab, which is. Right. I'm a free speech absolutist, and I have been on Gab, and it's disgusting. (laughs) Uh, It's it's just it's as gross as the media says it is, Um, and that's part of the problem. We'll we'll talk about free speech later this week, but uh, you know he says he's not a Trump voter, he's not someone who supported Trump, but he's clearly on Gab. He's motivated by anti semitism, and then the the day before that, or a couple days before that, the attempted. Uh, I I mean I guess we could call him a bomber. He wasn't very good at bombing. He just sort of was like, well, what would go in a bomb? And then just I don't know. Strong. He didn't even Google well, it. Uh, didn't
1: but you know the the uh, Chris Ray the the uh, head of the FBI said these are real bombs.
0: Right. No, they're filled with yeah. explosives. They were filled with. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it was the. Um, it's kind of what, it's pyrotechnic. I think is what I heard reported. Right. Uh, what yeah. you'd put in fireworks. Yeah. So they were they were actually dangerous. Uh, he yeah he seemed like. He seems like that guy. Everybody has one of these people in their town where he's rolling around in the van with the uh, the crazy stickers all over the place, and you're just like, yeah, that guys that guy's got a screw loose. Um, we'll yeah. we'll give you more details on him on Tuesday, and as well as the Pittsburgh shooting. And I I saw in Meet the Press this morning there was another there was an a, a black couple killed in. Uh, somewhere in the Midwest, and the guy in a Kroger, because he was trying to get into a black church and couldn't get in because of security, to to basically shoot up this church, and he was motivated uh, by hatred towards African Americans. So, you know, we have these three instances of, of violence coming from, I- I'm not going to say the right, because these people, all three of them seem to be fairly unstable, and just because they have trump bumper stickers it doesn't mean that they're motivated by politics and i would say the same about the guy who said he was motivated by bernie sanders and the left when he shot up the baseball diamond uh there yeah. there are um well they're more motivated
1: by pathologies yes. than they are necessarily by politics i think is what you're trying to say
0: yeah exactly and yeah. you know yeah. watching yeah. the sunday shows you and i watched the sunday shows practically together this yep. morning and it, <laughs> true. and it's all about how the rhetoric is all Trump's fault, but of course you have these instances of Eric Holder and Hillary Clinton and some of the people on the the figurehead. It's it's amazing to watch Joe Biden have the lack of self awareness where he's preaching a politics of change at McCain's funeral, and then three weeks later he's you know we got to kick him when he's down type type rhetoric uh, towards Trump. And yeah. but there there is it's just this uh, that's a cognitive dissonance for another day, but the. You and I both know, having watched a lot of campaigns, The but a lot of our listeners have never followed campaigns. This is the first one where they're really paying attention to a campaign. And the month before, especially the two weeks before, things get really hot, and it's only going to get hotter as we move forward. And there's a big discussion about uh, how dangerous and violent the rhetoric is in politics today. Uh you know, and I'll be honest. I I watch a lot of this, and I go, it's not that much more heated than it was during the two thousand and four elections. It's probably less in some ways. It is easier to pin it on Trump because he's so outlandish. Uh, but I've done a fair bit of history uh, re- reading about the history of the '60s and the civil rights movement, and those those were instances where. You had entire groups of people just beaten because of politics. You had – I think I read um, at one point, I think it was in one of the – I think it was Taylor Branch's book. It was like 10,000 bombings or something crazy. Yeah, yeah. It, it was like an, an enormous amount of political bombings in the United States that I was well, just and surprised. That period
1: was – well, having lived through that period, so I was born in 1950, and in the I went to college in 1968, which was kind of a peak of the anti-war protests. But, you know, before that, in the early 60s, you had all of the racially driven protests. You know, Birmingham used to be referred to as Bombingham. Right. Um, Horrific, horrific um, um, bombing in 1963 of a church. Um, racially motivated. There were there were thousands, as you say, of uh, kinds of incidents, um, not just in the South across the country. The, we- um, the weather underground. That, for- well, this was pre-weather underground because okay. this was actually during the early '60s. It was a lot of it was racially motivated. As you moved into the late '60s, when I went to college, it was the weather underground, and, and you know it was anti-Wall Street. There were eight bombings in New York City. Uh, on Wall Street in 1969, um, uh, carried out by kind of the left. Um, so, um, and and I will tell you uh, in college, and I'm sure uh, I don't know how many of your listeners are my age or close to it, but um, you know we would we we would have classes suspended um, because someone would call in a bomb threat. And this was at Rice University in Houston. Uh, Rice, which is not particularly liberal, was well, it's not not liberal. I mean, it's intellectually liberal and in other ways, but I mean that in the broad-minded, you know, open to new ideas kind of thing, right. It didn't have a political point of view, but, uh, and in Texas, I'm sure it was considered left-leaning, but, um, we were 300 and some acres behind a hedge. Um, we, uh, had just integrated, I think in 1967, um, uh, and that had caused its own set of issues and, um, uh, I remember vividly uh, campus being shut down uh, at one point because uh, people were afraid that there were uh, racially motivated attacks going to come across the, the hedge. And, um, uh, but classes would be called off because of a purported bomb threat and so on and so forth. And, you know, my wife, who went to our College in, in southwestern Virginia, which was a woman's college, then one of the seven Southern sisters, and by the way, how, how times have changed. Most people did not would not know that today that the University of Virginia and Virginia, uh, and uh, some of the other public institutions did not admit women. Duke did not admit women. Princeton, Harvard, Yale wow. did not admit women to, to as late as, as uh, 1967, 68, 69. So, you know, if you were um, a Southern, intelligent Southern woman, you had to go to Something like that. You could have gone to Virginia Tech. My mother went to Virginia Tech uh, back in the 40s. So I, I know it was um, – they allowed women in, but UVA did not. Duke did not, and nor did the Ivies. And, but my point was she, even she had a bomb call in out there in the middle of uh, you know, near Lynchburg, Virginia. You look it up on the map. So the – and the whole climate was scary. I mean, I think we – all of us in the 60s really wondered what on earth was happening to society. You know, we had, of course, the Kennedy assassination in 63, but then you get to the election in 67, 8, 9, you know, had the the, the Robert Kennedy assassination, uh, Martin Luther King. We had well, Malcolm X was assassinated. Uh, um, and, and there were political assassinations then, which we um, – We have fortunately not gotten to yet here, Uh, although we had uh, Gabby, you know, Gabby out there in uh, uh, New Mexico or Arizona. I can't remember. She was someone tried to kill her. Um, This is not the first time we've been through it. Uh, In some ways, it's not it it doesn't feel as bad to me as it felt then. I would say that the rhetoric was very different then and and the velocity of uh, words uh, was slower because we did not. All we had was television and radio and newspapers. And there was no internet, of course. And um, uh, computers were still using um, r- big reams of paper. Uh, that, those were the days when, if you're going to do a computer program, you did it on an IBM 1620 or some other. Well, Rice had its own computers they'd built. but um, And you would put your code on what, Hollerith cards, these little cards, and and type it in a big clunky machines and put it in a shoebox and race it down and, and before midnight and they would batch process everything and get big sheets of paper telling what was different. So that was what it was like. It, so the velocity of everything is different today. Um, whether it's computers or, or media or language and. Um,
0: well, uh, literally, literally every person, anytime anything ever happens on a daily basis feels that they need to make a public statement about it. I mean, well, wow, and everybody
1: knows about it within seconds.
0: Yeah, and so people feel that they're their own PR department, and so we feel we have to go on Twitter and make a comment about the shooting or the bomber or whatever. Like, we we all have to denounce it or embrace something or support something, and it's all kind of virtue signaling is, is a term that has kind of popped up in the last two or three yeah. years. Uh, yeah. You know, and it is, it's it's a lot about social proof. Am I in the in-group or am I in the out-group? And do I wear being in the out-group as a badge <laughs> of honor? And yeah, so it is it, it, it is a situation where everybody's talking about everything and usually from a very ill-informed place and from a, you know, if you read Jonathan Haidt's um, book on religion and politics and why it does, uh, The Righteous Mind, that's what it's called. He basically right, is like... it. Twitter is essentially just um, apes grunting at each other. (laughs) It's just impulse comments. And so, yeah, it, it does feel very volatile. But when you look at the 60s where you had major figures being assassinated, you had... Uh, you know, we had race riots. We had the Watts had riots. Yeah,
1: Vietnam. Yeah, we had anti-Vietnam riots. We had, you know, we went from race riots to war, anti-war riots and all of that. Now, the other thing that I do think, and this does not excuse, we should not excuse any of this at all. Um, and I think the, and I, I do think and this is not a criticism of Trump, of which we have many <laughs> on this show, yeah. but, uh, he, you know, his reaction to me, he was asked a gun control question, um, uh, either this morning or yesterday. And his response was, I think if these people did not have a guard in the synagogue, that this might not have happened. And of course that's been read to say, as Trump's first statement was about guns. And I am no fan, as you know, um, but that was not his first that that was a leading question and of course it's been um, it's been recontextualized in the media i think and in in a way that's, that's not that's a good way of saying really propaganda
0: exactly,
1: yeah 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 so <laughs> that's not exactly right they shouldn't probably shouldn't do that but i think the other question is really how much can you do about this um, the the reality is we have what 340 50 million 60 million people now and if one thousandth of a percent of the population is uh, uh, criminally uh, uh, pathological and wants to do something like that. Um, that is still three hundred and sixty thousand people. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, uh, and so every one of those is magnified uh, beyond its particular meaning uh, to something else. And and of course. People are sort of right that language and rhetoric and and the politics, I think, has an effect. But I don't think it's causal necessarily.
0: Well, people have this feeling that if someone disagrees with me, it's violence. (laughs) Everybody's a little too sensitive. Yeah, that's right. Well,
1: I'm I'm sure I've told you this story before that my my kids – I think millennials, you, you millennials have a different view of things. <laughs> when my kids and I would get into some form of disagreement when they were younger and I'm, I'm thinking, I'm just being intense. They're saying, stop yelling at me, stop yelling at me. Right. And I, and, and I'm thinking, well, if I were yelling, you would know it. <laughs> but, um, but I do think uh, these, some of these things are hard to, it, it's all very hard to grasp. It's all terrible. Yeah. in, uh, in just in and of itself, um, but I, I have to say that I think the '60s were a much more uh, terrifying period for Americans. We it, it felt as if it was complete political instability, um, racial divides, uh, economic. Uh, the war tore people apart, um, and uh, uh, I think a lot of our differences today are more magnified than they in fact actually are and they're they're magnified in a way that that uh, uh, makes them a, it's it's convenient to handle things as being left or right
0: yes it's very simple the, the internet is very simplistic for is is yeah. in depth as you can go on a show like this social media is everybody's just so like there's a joke on on the show that I work for during the daytime that Charlie Daniels is blind and that Roy Orbison is blind and and it's just pure purely silly because they're not blind and I'll get these letters like I re- I researched this for 3 hours and you're giving out false information it's like you're listening to a comedy show it's a joke like everybody's just yeah. so literal and straightforward and so it it is it's it's Let me get it down to the most simplistic thing, and I think we're kind of being drugged down by the lowest common denominator, the people who can't think in a complex way. So let me ask ask you this. So if you go back to the 60s, then obviously the 70s and 80s follow it. How did the country grow out of it? Was it just that the people who were the most radical grew up? Because the people who are the most radical right now are the Gen Z kids or the younger millennials, the kids who are in Antifa are all in their early twenties. I mean, do those people just grow up and change and, you know, they're Bill Ayers and all of a sudden they're friends with uh, Obama on educational boards and, you know, and, and they just sort of over time change their stripes. If, you know, how did the country grow out of that period and change? Well,
1: well, that's a, that's a really interesting question. And I'm not a sociologist as you know, but I, but experientially, if you think back, um, so, um, there was actually a pretty strong response by society and leaders in society to try to actually deal with all of these various issues. So, you know, the response to Rachel Carson's book uh, finally was the Environmental Protection Agency, and then we had reorganizations. Uh, Nixon was, uh, for all of his many faults in Watergate, was was the really first modern president. And the guy to think about how to manage, we talked about this once before, that OMB, Office of Management and Budget, used to be uh, a whole bunch of people managing and trying to do best practices across the government. And this, now it's mainly bean counters. Um, th- so there was a real attempt to for society to, to actually address some of these questions. You know, I think uh, affirmative action, love it or hate it, um, uh, these were uh, – People trying to figure out what do you do about this, and um, and I think that uh, some of the more radical forces on left and right became isolated enough that um, uh, that you could actually s- extract from that isolation what the actual issue was and try to deal with it. The war essentially ended in Vietnam, and you know Nixon ended that in 1973. I guess was when we finally pulled out. For something like that. Um, th- there were other exogenous things going on, you know, with the moon launch, we land on the moon in 68. People forget that. And that was considered a massive, That was such a national boost in ego and, and feeling of accomplishment in the midst of all this other stuff going on. Uh, 69, I guess that was. So um, I do think that society reacted by trying to, to address issues. And I, I think in fact uh, that that life is a lot better for most people today, not saying it's what it should be for everyone, but um, uh, there's less there does seem to be less than ability among the political class to try to figure out uh, how to split the difference and move ahead at least three feet if you can't move ahead ten feet and um, and that is this you know this political polarization that we've been talking about a little bit but The irony that you're is that um, those 60s kids are my generation. And when you look at who votes today and who votes relatively conservatively and who is uh, voting for Trump, a lot of those people are the people who grew up in that period. Hmm. So um, now many of those are not the radicals. And they remember the radicals then were a small group on either side. Um, they just caused a lot of, you know, a lot of noise and dislocation periodically. Uh, you know, there is a whole category of people who are Vietnam veterans or families who are affected by that, um, uh, so on and so forth. So I think you're right. People do grow out of it, but it is ironic that that generation is probably the more conservative voter set today. Um, uh, uh, the one that, you know, uh, Free, free love and uh, and free marijuana, you know, <laughs> in the sixties. <'60s. laughs> well, I wonder. I
0: think there's. I think there are definite contractions and a is just the in, yeah. in an individual's life. You know, where yeah. my I, I'll, I'll get uh, I'll get too far ahead of my skis and then crash and then go. Whoa! I need to get my senses together. I need to I need to yeah. get a grip and I need to focus on what's important. And I, I feel like we're headed towards that moment where we're having a collective. This is we are not these people and everybody's kind of. Looking for, looking for change, and you know we were talking about you know growing a uh, growing number of independents and people yeah. looking for different options, and I really do feel like we're on the brink. I look at it kind of optimistically in some ways that we're we're on the brink of. You, you ha- we're having growing pains, just like the '60s. You had growing pains as you mm-hmm. you you brought women and, and minorities into society and uh, gave you know. <laughs> stop using the government to prevent them from having freedom, I guess is the way to put it. Right, right. And I feel like we're in the middle of a massive change in the workforce, and the way that we communicate in every aspect of our life. And so there are a lot of growing pains right now. But on the other end of that, you end up with a society that is, it has worked some kinks out. And so people are starting to think more independently.
1: Well, well and and on a political side, there's an awful lot of data Um, you you know you and i were talking earlier about this polarization the country split down the middle we have you know it's um it's uh what is it it's 40 probably 49 to 47 and a couple points in the middle and uh one side or the other and and i'm guessing that if you sort of numerized everybody and their points of view uh, what you would find is that people agree with each other and and Hugh has done some research here, and we might be able to get some of that data for our next session. But what you'll find is that most people uh, find themselves just a few inches away from the center on everything and can accept or agree within some boundary with about 90% of everyone else. And the problem is that um, that doesn't make for very good um <laughs> Uh, winning politically. To win politically, you got to get people to say, "I'm on this side or that side." So, to me, I think a lot of there's an aspect of this so-called polarization which is is not real. Um, I I think it's man-made, uh, and I don't mean that in the way that they would say that it's rhetoric and everything else. I think it's man-made in the sense that you, you have to divide in order to win. Uh, I'll tell number. you, it, yeah,
0: I'll tell you exactly. And go ahead if I'm cutting you off. No, 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 no. Okay,
1: no. Just, uh, just a thought.
0: Just a just a editor's note. When you wrestle with the mic, we can hear that. So just be, oh, be aware of that. Um, I, doing this show, and I've I've worked in radio since 2004, and politics in politics or radio. Uh, And so when you're doing media, when you're doing anything that builds an audience or you're trying to grow a community, there's two ways to do it. You can just do the hard work and grind and be very thoughtful and very detailed and produce a product that nobody else is doing. Or you can be kind of outrageous and get attention for yourself and be a flash. And what I've learned over time is that Flash will always get you a bigger audience quickly, but it doesn't last because it eventually destroys you. I think the way to the way to look at this is like Tommy Lauren or Milo Yiannopoulos; those people are inherently more exciting for people to watch. There's always a lot more eyeballs on them, but at the end of the day, it's it's not as exciting as maybe a uh, you know maybe even a Tom Woods podcast or or, or something. So. When you're when you're looking at how to do, and, and you you listen to every episode of We're Libertarians, you hear this over the years. We've we've gone back and forth between, all right, let's do the cheap and easy, sugary diet type of broadcasting, or let's feed you a proper meal that's going to make you a, a healthier person. And so there's always that tension, I think, and that's part of what people love Trump because Trump is reality TV. But Mitch Daniels yeah. is what you really need in government, and Mitch Daniels is so boring. <laughs> not Donald <laughs> That's Trump, right. you know. And so, <laughs> what what plays in media is not centrism. Like you roll your eyes at Michael Smirconish, you love to laugh at Donald Trump, you know. It's so it yeah. is. It's a lot of a lot of it. I place on not just corporate media, but what we choose to consume. We're training the behavior of politicians, media corporations by what we what we choose to actually consume in any area and so that's that's a big part of the problem so yeah i agree i think most people if they have a conversation with each other they agree on a ton of things you know treat people fairly don't steal their stuff you know it, but that's not good tv and so that no, that's i right. think is a huge part of the problem
1: yeah, well, and and you mentioned the the so-called boring politicians. I do think one of we've talked about this before. One of the big ironies, and you know, the title of this is "Drain the Swamp." One of the big ironies here is that um, there's not a lot of draining going on because are not a lot of Trump people in in office yet because they haven't nominated most of them. So the the government is still being run by the professional swamp swamp uh, denizens. So if, uh, some in some respects, fortunately.
0: Yeah, so uh, do you want to talk about midterms, or should we ask that question about the swamp and then talk about uh,
1: – Yeah, well, I guess one qu- – uh, either way, let's, uh, I'm happy to go however you want
0: to go. All right, let's 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 segue into the swamp, and then we can do our midterm predictions towards the end here. Yeah. Uh, you, you are a prognosticator of uh, a foremost ability, <laughs> so I want to make sure that we get you on record uh, in case right. we don't talk before the election. So – uh ryan Lindsay in the facebook group and if you're not in our facebook group please go join it and uh while you're visiting wearelibertarians.com to find that link make sure that you sign up for all the other social networks in case we disappear right. um ryan asks has trump had any meaningful effect on the swamp
1: yeah so that's that's a good question and uh you have to divide it in my my view into two parts um one part is there's just a whole lot of function that the government has to undertake. They've got to get out social security checks. They've got to run the defense department. They have to see that um, uh, various institutions function. That student loans get you know dispersed. That they get collected and so on and so forth. Um, fortunately, that stuff kind of runs on its own. Um, then there is the other side, which is the big policy part, and There is no question that in um, certain areas uh, where Trump has taken a strong personal interest and has really put his people in place, you are seeing um, big changes, Uh, whether it is in our approach to the Iranians or to the Russians or uh, to China uh, or to trade or to um, uh, uh, neighbors to the north or south or any of those things. There's no question that um, his appointees um, have changed the dialogue and uh, in ways that make a lot of people uncomfortable um, and which many of as destructive. But if, you, uh, if you're like me and you, you're, you like to see change, um, uh, you probably like some of it and you don't like some of it and you may be disgusted by all of it. and have a problem. So on some things, uh, the swamp is being drained, but that's not really the swamp, how we deal with the Chinese. Um, uh, I I alluded to it a minute ago, the big issue for Trump in getting control of the swamp is that uh, they, in order to do it, you really have to have people running departments and agencies. So, you know, they're roughly about um, 700 political uh, executive branch positions that have to be nominated by the president and then confirmed by the Senate. Um, About a little over half of those have been nominated and gone through the Senate process and are in place. And another quarter have been nominated and another quarter have not. And that means that... um, to just under half of all of the positions across the government, um, that, you know, that includes cabinet secretaries and deputy and assistant secretaries and, and, um, uh, agency heads and, and, you know, the, the number of government agencies is, is mammoth. Um, and they have to be, the only way you can change their direction or drain the swamp, if you want to call it that, is to actually put people in place, um, to do it. You know, you just can't wave a one. So, um, looking at, uh, Trump's, um, kind of priorities about three quarters of the political positions have been filled in defense, uh, about, uh, three quarters in, in education, health and human services, uh, about two thirds in, in Homeland security, which in my opinion is hugely critical and only two thirds in veterans affairs. And of course, you know, he's been emphasizing all that, and it and he doesn't have all the people in place to, to manage what are huge budgets. Um, where he doesn't care so much agriculture, state, treasury, labor, interior, and the justice department it's, it's half or less. Uh, and, and then if you start at EPA, only 40 percent of the people who, um, the political appointees have been uh approved and another 20% have been nominated and you know if you want to change the law and the rules and regulations you actually have to have someone there who knows what they are who can pinpoint them and who can say let's rewrite or change this and so uh, is he really draining a swamp i i think probably not i think there are some visible things uh, that are not yet uh, fully Uh, done and they won't be because they have failed to do the number one thing a chief executive of any organization needs to do which is to put his team in place so i so the answer is no i don't think he's draining it very much Uh, look before you say uh, that i just
0: have to say i love the sound of Ending government through attrition. <laughs>
1: like well, so, you okay, tell you tell me that. why? Yeah, you tell me why Which, it's a bad thing because no, no.
0: I'm sitting here going, this is great, but it is also an issue that libertarians. Gary Johnson got elected in 2016. You're looking yeah. at the same problem, I and mean, like you're looking at, you know. But why is it a problem when there isn't actually somebody in those positions? Because what I hear, oh, okay, that means there's less. People, you know, in these organizations that are that are, frankly, getting government paychecks from my tax dollars and doing less, and people have to justify their phony baloney jobs, so they take action. And when there's less of those people, then there's less bureaucracy, there's less regulation, there's less of everything. So, well, so what's so the here, what's the problem here? What am I missing? There's,
1: there, there's so there's. No less regulation. Hold on, Rob.
0: You're going to have to say there that is again. There's no
1: less bureaucracy. The bureaucracy work every day. So, so this is. Um, there is not less regulation, and, and there is not less bureaucracy, for the simple reason that the bureaucracy. Uh, is in place. These are professional civil servants. They go to work every day. Um, They manage the same programs every day that they have been managing for 20, 30, 40 years um, uh, under regulations that were written in uh, the Obama administration in the Bush administration, the Clinton administration, and on. And um, uh, unless you can change the regulations, that's the job. That's the guideline. A government today is run by regulations. The regulations tell the government what it has to do, not just what we out here in the countryside have to do. So, if you don't like the labor regulations, um, you, uh, right today, uh, they are identifying and have identified Obama-era labor regulations that uh, this crowd doesn't like and they're publishing uh changes that eliminate them but by and large most of everything is still in place as are the people administering it and they can do some visible things uh interior for example can de-designate de uh de-designate uh, certain parks and things like that but by and large um there's very little that has changed because they don't have the capacity, the manpower to actually do it, and that's because they have not made the appointments uh, in place for people who have the the same point of view. Now, in the defense of the bureaucracy, um, bureaucrats uh, know that they uh, their job is to reflect the inclinations of whatever the current political. Uh, administration is uh, within the rules of law. And so y- y- the way it works is you have an assistant secretary and he wants to change a rule uh, under the law. He works with the bureaucracy. He says, this is where we want to go. Uh, they being good civil servants, help them write it in a way that stays within the law. Or if he says, I don't like that, they'll actually help him write a new law to send to the Congress where they will rewrite it. Um, but you don't have much of that happening. Because they, they they have failed, uh, this administration has failed in its number one job, which is to put people in place to execute its vision of government.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that makes total sense. You have to have people in there actually going, "Hey, there's a problem here. We need to fix this," as opposed to just letting it rot on the vine. That's yeah, yeah, makes total sense. Yeah, you you were telling me about um, how how this came up as we were talking a little bit about. Um, Kashoji Kashoji right yeah and you mentioned that you work in the middle east and that kind of led to some of this so can you tell us a little bit about your experiences working in middle eastern countries
1: oh well one of one of the companies that uh, we started is a company that um, uses technology to uh, optimize and manage the movement of trucks to and from ports. And we began in Jordan actually about 15 years ago. Um, another organization on the board of which I sit, the Northern Virginia Technology Council, about 20 of us business executives and 100 government officials sat down to a lunch with the King of Jordan, King Abdullah, who was then fairly new in the job. And um, and uh, I happen to sit next to the ambassador from Jordan, who was a serial technology entrepreneur, and we great conversation. I end up getting invited over, and in the government, the U.S. government, this is where they can do good things. Uh, was trying to encourage investment in that country and Jordan, which is an ally and uh, and has been supported by the U.S. ever since its founding. <coughs> Uh, and so we founded a company that we found um, a, a six kilometer line at the port of Aqaba, which is their strategic port of trucks. And these trucks were moving at about an inch a, mi- uh, a minute or every other couple minutes um, using, uh, uh, you know, clutch and all of the rest of that. So it was very tiring and it would take 18 hours or more to get to the gate. Um, we put in a system that basically uh, eliminated the line by telling when telling trucks when they should arrive. Uh, So if you've ever been in an airplane flying from one city to another and you're on a schedule, sometimes you just sit there longer than you think and they put you in the air. And what's going on is there's a technology operating there that's trying to make sure that your plane lands at your destination exactly as another plane pulls out of a slot And if you run into a thunderstorm and you go around it and you're delayed by five minutes, that slot you had rolls over to someone else uh, and you get the next one. And these things happen automatically. And, you know, if you end up circling in the air, that's a failure of the system. It wastes fuel. You have to dump it. uh, It's uh, et cetera, et cetera. So we do that with trucks. And some years, uh, some years ago the Iraqi government approached us because we Uh, you know, the line is gone. There are no lines in Jordan. And for every dollar we take out in, um, in fees and revenues that creates $20 of, of uh, gross domestic product for uh, Jordan by increasing the velocity of their transportation and, and business. And, um, We're now doing that in Iraq. And, you know, Iraq is a very difficult environment. It took us seven years to get everything up and running and all that's going well. And as I was telling you also, Chris, we we lose about we're losing about two million a year right now. Uh, uh, The transportation minister there is diverting about one in four of our trucks and we get paid uh, for every truck that goes through the gate and all 100 percent are supposed to go through it. But now they've just had elections. And so we believe that the new government is going to be less corrupt, uh, than the old one. Uh, mm-hmm. and that kind of the way this is, you know, the, and of course we're looking at Saudi Arabia as a potential place to go and, uh, and, and other countries across the Middle East and North Africa and, uh, political stability is something you, you do want to see. And this, uh, Khashoggi thing has, I think probably affected all of that. You know, it was, a. I understand the conference uh, over in Saudi Arabia uh, So was obviously less well attended by named people. And I think it It uh, companies will keep doing business, but it's under a little bit. It's under a cloud. And, um, you know, that uh, and that country is not quite it's not in the least bit democratic. Uh, Jordan has elections. Iraq has elections. We um, they are now they've just finished their third Election post war, and they have a new government, and it's a tech, technocratic government. Um, I mean, even frankly, even the Iranians have elections. Um, <laughs> you know, they don't get to pick who their who their uh, who, who gets to run. Actually, the the, the mullahs have a veto. But um, even there, uh, the election outcome is not always predictable. So there is a form of democracy going on there, where people are able to express their opinion.
0: I mean it's not like we have that much of a different system <laughs> you kind like the choices in November were pre-selected by parties and I don't mean people who went to primaries. I mean you know here in Indiana it's the it's a guy named Bob grand who runs the biggest law firm in the city like he's the one who's really choosing. Who's going to control the state? I mean, so it's, well,
1: we're we're a bit more free yeah. than, than, all, than all those countries. We um, can still elect to Donald I, Trump. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so. well, that's right. And believe me, he was not picked by the leadership
0: of the country. No, that's for sure. Yeah,
1: <laughs> he, he was picked by the uh, by the, the vagaries of the Electoral College
0: right.
1: and 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 uh, 40, what, 47 percent of the population. So uh, and that's the way it works. You know, we have a government in Turkey. In Turkey, the the Erdogan government, I think, has now won three elections. The first one, maybe four. The first one, they only had about thirty five percent of the vote. But where, the way they work there is that unless you hit ten percent, if I recall, I think it's ten percent, all of those votes get thrown out, and your votes get dispersed among the other political parties. and And enough of those happen that they were able to get over the 50% line in the first election, even though they only received 35 or so percent. And then the second election, it was – they had more because, of course, they controlled the political levers. And then by the third election, they controlled all the levers, the press, which is no longer free there. So
0: different form. Yeah, they – but but boy, when uh, the press isn't free in Saudi Arabia, do they make a noise. Uh. Yeah.
1: Now, one thing I, I will say, you know, this is about the swamp, right? And yeah. the, 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 the draining it and then explaining it and, and the explaining part of this. So when we ran into these issues in Iraq um, with the government and a government minister, um, I, I had no problem at all uh, c- contacting um, the the people in the department, the United States Department of State and the ambassador and, and giving our story. And they all became advocates and the ambassador to Iraq and the ambassador to Jordan uh, and the one became the other. The, the ambassador to Jordan uh, uh, later became the ambassador to Iraq and now he's in the private sector. These are people who are actually professional um, State Department uh, uh, civil servant equivalents. They are people who have built their careers there and in certain um in certain instances, you want to have people who actually know what they're doing as opposed to are there because they gave the president a million dollars <laughs> and, and want the social cachet of being an ambassador. So uh, in places like the Middle East, those are professional ambassadors. And that is the swamp that, you know, everybody complains about. But I will say as a business guy, um, I I am very thankful uh, that these guys were there uh, this uh uh, this one in particular, Stuart Jones, uh, is is just fabulous, and his successors have been great. And they will sit down and listen to you directly, and they bring their staff in, and they will follow up, and they have done it consistently. And you know, they we we've, we've actually been able to work with the Iraqi ambassador to the United States, uh, three of them. Um, and the problem is there there has been a corrupt transportation minister. Everybody knows he's corrupt. Uh, there's only so much you can do about it, uh, and uh, and now we have in Iraq a new government, which is um, which is um, uh, technocratic. Uh, it was elected. It took them six or eight months after the elections to figure it out. Uh, but these guys are are technocrats. Actually, had someone, I think the. Uh, I can't tell you the name of the person because they'd like it to be confidential, but it's someone high in the Iraqi government who said it. If only the United States had pointed to these people and and helped get them in office right after the war, so many things would be different. And who knows whether that's true or not. But uh, anyway, it's just uh, uh, there are good things about uh, having uh, swamp creatures uh, who know what they're doing um, uh, stay put and do their job.
0: Yeah, well, that's fascinating. Um, You don't—I've just never met anybody who's actually like had to call an ambassador before. That's very (laughs) fan. Like I'm just sitting here going, my life is so—I thought my life was complicated, but like you're (laughs) calling ambassadors, and it's very, very uh, interesting. Like the so all the so when people say the American government is corrupt. Like, yeah, you got the Clinton Foundation and stuff like that. But, like, do, do you kind of roll your eyes and go, all right, let's not overdo it? Because I've had business in Iraq. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, I, I do think, um, you know, of course there are different kinds of corruption. There's monetary corruption and there is um, uh, intellectual corruption and there is political corruption and all of that. I don't, I don't think the the these people are any – more corrupt necessarily. I I do think there is a lot of naivete in the people coming uh, with, with the administration. At least a lot of the early guys. You know the the, um, the Pruitt, who was the first EPA administrator. Um, you know he, he had made a name for himself in politics in Oklahoma by taking on the federal government. But and he's a smart guy. Uh, but uh, I think you know a lot of problem people come to Washington and they really think they got to live like. Uh, you know, the, the people they see around them, the lobbyists and everybody else. And they, they're they supposed to be on a civil servant, you know, on a salary. So they're not big salaries. And it's expensive to live in Washington and even nearby Virginia and Maryland. But um, So I don't know if I think there's any more of the monetary kind. I do think there's a kind that comes about because of naivete. And, and you know, I think I've told you before that I, I've known several politicians who've gone to jail for things that – me are incomprehensible there was one uh, guy who whose wife i met when i ran for congress in 1984 she was she and he are both lovely people and he he ended up in jail for padding his expense account a couple mm. hundred bucks here and there um another guy i knew was the governor of connecticut and uh, he ended up in jail for letting contractors uh, work on his house and and um, uh, and, of course, then, you know, Ted Stevens, who was a senator from Alaska, was convicted, although it was eventually overturned for essentially the same kind of thing. So um, a lot of corruption comes about because people don't follow the rules that they may not understand. But the, but I will say there are an awful lot of people in the swamp who are the ethics guys who will tell you if you ask what you can and
0: can't do. <laughs> So, you know, um, well, that, when I when I was helping got, candidates, it was like here. So, what are the FEC rules? I don't know. Just don't do anything. <laughs> like, then, you, then you won't be. Well, at, that's about at, right. At yeah. well, j- well, the other thing is is does it feel
1: right? And now, so when I was Maritime Commissioner in the, in the early 1990s, each of us had a budget. Um, there were five commissioners, and um, I I was invited to give more speeches than the entire commission put together times two. Because I was trying to, you know, I was fairly radical about it. I was trying to abolish the agency and deregulate the industry and get rid of a bunch of these rules in the maritime industry, which we've talked about in other of these podcasts. Um, um, And at some point, I ran out of my budget. And I just decided that I was not going to let these parties pay for my way. So I actually paid for my travel um, for the second half of the year each year because I didn't want anybody to look at me and say, Well, these are industry groups and they're they're paying for your way and are you corrupt? You know? Right. Or are you being are you being bribed by lunch, a chicken lunch? Give me a break.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> all right let's ask uh the next question this involves the fed- yeah. federal reserve very libertarian question when it involves the federal uh, re- uh the fed uh kenneth writes what type of mingling actually happens between the politicians in dc and the federal reserve we're told that it's a separate entity but it sure seems not to be the case uh, well they are uh, well they're, they're two different sets of things here
1: one is um there is a constant exchange of information between the bureaucracies um, of the Fed and um, other uh, agencies like the Treasury Department, and they have to do that because you know they they have to they're buying and selling securities and and all of these things, and there are a number of things which are required by law. At, at a social level, um, um, you know. These are people who live in Washington, out of convenience, because that's where their jobs are. And you and the the chairman of the Fed always lives in the community. And and, and we have certainly seen um, the last couple chairmen out and about in the community. And that's really what you want them to do. And and by the way, they also have spouses who have their own jobs and their own social networks. And it would be really strange. It would be incredibly strange if these. Uh, were people were not allowed to go about um, having a social life uh, in the community in Washington, where all of these people live? Right. Uh, they also reach out to the business community. I was in a meeting, invited to a meeting in uh, I think it was March or April, must have been late April. Um, um, the again, this Northern Virginia Tech Council on which I sit had uh, invited the the Richmond, uh, the governor of the Richmond Federal Reserve, who was. A new appointee, a, a business guy, um, and he had requested a meeting with um, technology leaders. So we had about twenty people in the room, and a great lunch and a real free exchange of ideas. And some people would, you know, talk about this and that, and some would complain, and some would compliment. Um, but it's hard for me to think it's a bad thing for for the governors to not take part in society on a regular basis. And it's hard for me to think it's a bad thing for them to not sit down to lunch and consult with business leaders about it.
0: Yeah, I think the underlying question here, the underlying concern is the idea that if you're friends with somebody or if you're acquaintances with someone or if you're supposed to be, uh, you know, if you're Robert. Mueller, the Special Investigative Counsel, like you're never to have any kind of relationship with anybody who's involved in anything. So, I think people have two conceptions of Washington, D.C. and government in general, is that everybody who draws a federal government paycheck is at at a dinner party every night <laughs> and meeting everybody <laughs> yeah. else. Well, no. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. No, I mean, I think a lot of people would be surprised if you talk to people who go and work in Washington, D.C. I've had a tremendous amount of friends go and work in Washington, D.C. over the years with congressmen at agencies, now with the vice president. You know they're at home on Friday night watching Netflix with their kids. They're it's a job to them. It's not. It's not. An, it, no, no totally. you well, know, and, and these people
1: work incredibly hard. I, I'm sure I did tell that story some back time back um, uh, when uh, uh, the president's chief economic advisor from Wall Street, Gary Cohn, said, um, "What are the two big?" surprises and he said well one of them is how hard people work i'm and i am personally working harder now than i have since i was in my 20s mm-hmm. that's what he said and he of course is in his 60s and the reality is people it's a short-term job if you're a political appointee or head of the fed or any of these things you know you're there for four six eight years at best um, and most people are only for two and you work your tail off as do all the people who work for you because they're they're on your calendar and your time and it doesn't matter frankly whether they're political appointees or civil servants the high-level civil servants work their ass off just like uh, you know the high-level political appointees that, yeah that's their job and it is a job and and um, and believe me there there are not a lot of parties there are a lot of parties but they're not Like they used to be in the old days, you know, when I was um, first in Washington uh, and had very little money, um, my roommates and I would make sure that we had at least two nights out uh, where we would find some congressional or or, or executive branch party that we could crash and fill in as extra numbers because, you know, fundraisers and all these things, they never get the attendance they want, but they want to have what looks like a lot of attendance for whoever the speaker might be. And so it was no problem to walk into an event and say, "Oh, we're with so and so," and eat our fill and not have to pay. <laughs> so it's not, it's, you know, it's not quite as much fun as it
0: used to be. The other, the other myth that I would kind of say in the underlying, and no disrespect, I just think that if you have experience, like I have a lot of experience working around local and state government um, and, and observing it here in Indiana, and um, you know, somewhat tentative view of Washington, D.C. as a result. And what you find is that I have a lot of friends. So I have a lot of friends who worked in the opposite party. I would go to lunch when I was the Libertarian Party executive director of Indiana. I would go to lunch with Republican state party or Democratic state party people and you'd swap information and you'd talk to people and you'd find out. And and it was essential intelligence gathering, but it was also a way for you to go, wow, this is a person. This is kind of the best time of any campaign season, you know, because the candidates go to debates with each other. And then these people that they have demonized for so long now are like people that they're having to talk to in a green room and they're meeting their wives and the campaign manager that they hate is actually like a nice guy yeah. and you know and so that that humanization <laughs> of each other it doesn't mean that you change your positions it means that you treat the other side a lot differently and you you have more of an open-hearted position as opposed to a hard-hearted position which in life is just a better way to operate it's much less intense and it's it's really not a bad thing for people to get together and and talk when they're com- when their competition, or even if it's, um, there's supposed to be a wall there. You know, once you start getting into entangling financial alliances or whatever, but I think we make a bigger deal. Uh, those of us who are not in, you know, who are in the middle of the America and don't have a, a good view, we've watched West Wing, so we have like that's what we think politics is, and <laughs> right. or House of Cards, yeah. and so we have this view of how things yeah. work. But yeah. in reality, n- knowing each other and having a relationship is not a bad thing and it doesn't inherently mean that there's corruption or that the truth and justice in the american way isn't being executed because they know each other
1: yeah that's right so um well and uh well no more comments on it i, I totally agree with you I, it's um uh and again, this also goes to this kind of artificial polarization, in my opinion, which is that most politicians would find more common ground if they were not whipped by their party whips and and whipsawed by uh, their newspapers and the local um, political parties uh, into taking a hardline position on one side or another. We would have a lot more uh, – we'd have a lot more getting done at the political level probably um, if, if – uh, if we didn't have all of these artificial devices creating a polarization,
0: what you see and people smell it out—the authenticity, the, yeah. the inauthenticity—what you see in public, what you see on the Sunday shows, none of that's real. It's it's the conversations that you hear on this show, or that you kind of assume. Or ha- I mean, that's that's the reality. It's not the the hardline position. So, uh, speaking of, yeah. I I got I've got to ask you briefly about the Kavanaugh stuff. Because I wonder, A, if you've ever met him or been around him or what you thought of it. And also, what was the environment like there in D.C. as, as all that was happening? Because that seemed to just light the city on fire. Uh, Kavanaugh, yeah. Um,
1: I had never met him. Uh, I knew kids who went to his school. Uh, who, who were kids' class who are you know now in the early 30s um, the school certainly had a reputation uh, uh, at least when my kids were there you know it not they didn't go to that school they went to another private school but um, uh, when they were in high school um, what's 15 17 years ago um, you know the school absolutely these boys schools had a reputation um, so I will say it whipsawed everybody. Uh, my wife would not discuss it with me or <laughs> with my daughter <laughs> um, because, uh, you know, you, you can't, it's hard not to get into a conversation about it without um, having to take a, kind of a polarized position. And, and my own view partly was that I know personally, I think, I, I don't think she was lying. Um, and I think most people would say that, although I think having been she was probably traumatized by the event and therefore it was magnified in some ways and that's that's rational um i don't think he was lying in the sense that if he if he was the, the kid who was doing it um how on earth would you remember it 36 years later and he was probably blottoed anyway so he didn't remember it even though he said he never got drunk like that so <laughs> so uh, i i think both people are good people and and all that i think for personally the thing that Made me and many of my friends uh, uncomfortable was his very uh, kind of impolitic rebuttal at the end, an attack on the senators, um, which felt um, really out of place and really not very uh, judicially tempered in the sense of a guy who's going to have to um, at some point review the laws that these very people have passed. Um, it felt inappropriate and that. I think is why one of the retired justices came out and opposed him. On the other hand, I just went to my 50th high school reunion uh, in Orlando, Florida, a class of 686 people. Um, I have physically seen only two people from my class in all that time and maybe had email contact with three others uh, uh, only a handful of times. And I went back thinking about Oh my God! Do I know? Am I going to know any of these people? And you know, you you have probably been to your tenth or fifteenth reunion, if that much. But yeah, we all walked around with name tags that had our high school photo on it <laughs> and our name and our name in big letters, so you could read it. And people would reach down and look at your name tag three inches from their nose, and they'd say, "Oh, I know you!" And <laughs> and I know I did the same frequently. And uh, even though I had not thought about or remembered any of these people in all of that 50 years or had contact, um, the fact that you knew them came flooding back, but you could not remember anything. I could not remember anything about any event except the semi-traumatic ones. Like, uh, I, there's a, a guy I, uh, who I was friends with. He was president of one of the clubs and, and my last encounter with him, he grabbed me by my shirt and said, stay away from my girlfriend <laughs> <laughs> and threatened to clobber me and I <laughs> saw him there and, and, uh, and obviously, he thought I was trying to make time with his girlfriend. Uh, and I saw him there, and I said, hi. You know, I had, we haven't talked, and my last recollection was this. And he said, really? I don't remember that at all. I can't believe I did it. <laughs> and I remembered it. <laughs> so, And he had ended up marrying her. So <laughs> I, I think, I think trying to remember what happened, even if you had a primitive calendar, 36 or 26 or 50 years, you know, earlier, is just, I think that's really problematic. So, I think in the end, and I've noticed that a lot of the press, even the left side of the press has been saying this a couple people recently it's that it really came down to kind of a due process question. Um, these things may or may not have been true, but you know, you can't prove it, and you can't disprove it and and um, no matter what you do so. I think in the end, that's that's essentially what Susan Collins said, and she also made the point that um, the groups who oppose uh, Trump and others, that, that they did put out a press release uh, the day the, the morning of before his name was even announced with X's <laughs> in the name because they didn't know who it was. Right. But this person that they were opposing was a terrible choice, an anti-American. and uh, no, no, no. So uh, I think it's going to be interesting to watch him. Um, my sense is he is going to be more moderate uh, than uh, Neil Gorsuch, who uh, was the last uh, judge, and I don't think he'll be quite as centrist as the judge he's replacing, Justice. But um, I don't think he's going to be the winger that he's painted. uh, uh it'll be interesting to watch that and now it's disappeared and did it energize the base uh that that is yet to be seen you know we'll see in a very few days um what's what's going to happen
0: i think yes but it it is the the polling for out out there shows that people aren't don't even remember that it happened i mean they you know yeah i think that's right it's just it's when people like this is going to swing the election for trump i'm like there's there's Two new cycles a day, and we have thirty days. No, it won't. <laughs> no, so,
1: no. well, no, and I think that's been swamped as has been this the this so called caravan out there, which I understand is now down to about three thousand mm. people. You know, the Mexicans are uh, are uh, actually taking their applications for asylum and feeding them, and they're peeling off. Uh, and of course, it's still a thousand miles away and moving at about uh, eight five or five or six or seven eight miles a day, if that much. Um, so. So I, it's going to be interesting. I think the election, uh, is, uh, it's pretty much up in the air. I'm still kind of where I was before when we get to that part.
0: Yeah, well, we're there. I think that a lot of polls show that in some of the key congressional districts, Republicans are tightening the race. Mike Braun here in Indiana is tightening with Joe Donnelly and, uh, you know, that that is uh, it's been quite the, the race to watch. My friend who lives yeah, in Florida, yeah. she just moved to Florida. So it's her first Florida election. And she's like, I can't take the mail anymore. It's insane. And so, <laughs> it, you know, it, it seems like a no holds bar. I think there's a lot in, at stake for for the president. Uh, if the Democrats actually do retake the House by a significant margin, I think impeachment is definitely on the table. Uh, it's been on the table for every president. Although not seriously for Obama, uh, since the Clinton affair, but um, yeah, so you you had a pretty good track record. You won a, quite a few bets with the Trump election and in 2016. So what are you <laughs> what are you thinking in terms of yeah. the midterms? Is there going to be a big blue wave?
1: Well, so so um, I don't think so. You know, I think I said last time that Charlie Cook said that. The republic—it's—it's it's the wave versus the seawall, and that Republicans have built a very strong seawall in the congressional redistricting of the last two cycles, twenty years. And um, so the question is: wh- Is there going to be a wave, and will it be big enough to wash over the wall? And I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a moderate wave, but I—I I still don't see um, a, a really big animating story for the Democrats. I think uh, that. Um, uh, you know i think uh, some of these things have, have uh, animated republicans and in opposition um, geared up women voters and others in certain areas but i am still in the position that uh, i'm going to be uh, i think my prediction is that that republicans will retain the house by a couple seats and that um we were, are likely to retain the Senate. If there's a big enough wave, though I personally think the Senate is more likely to flip than the House because the Senate, the, you need to, the way to think about that is the way the national elections worked in the presidential, which is that Hillary won by three, three and a half million votes, but she didn't get around the tactical bulwark of the states and the congressional districts and the, and the electoral college. And it's like that. So the Senate seats are all at large. And if there is a wave, they're more vulnerable to, you know, a half a point or a one point or two point shift than a lot of these congressional districts. So uh, now I know that uh, all of the formal prognosticators are, are predicting it's a three quarter probability that the House will flip. Um, but I'm sticking to my guns um, now uh, as a uh, I would say further, if the Democrats do not win the House, it will be the best thing possible for them, and the reason, in my mind, is that that will then allow them to get rid of um, Congresswoman Pelosi, who I think is their biggest um, uh, downside. They really have got to change generational leadership, and that is not going to happen if they win this the house in this cycle.
0: I don't know about where you're at, but I've heard this is a nationwide campaign. But the Indiana State Republican Party every single day sends me a mailer saying that if Donnelly wins, then Pelosi wins, and I'm just sitting here going, Senator Donnelly is not going to be affected by House Rep Pelosi. Like, but, yeah, uh, but it doesn't matter. Right. Her, her people don't know what who they don't know basic civics, and so. You're getting a Schumer and yeah. Pelosi mailing piece from the Republicans every single day, so her polling just must be abysmal. Uh, I I look at it. it
1: no, man, I've seen some. I have seen some horrific ads, though. I, and, and you know, there's this one guy, David Trone, who's a Maryland guy who ran last time and lost uh, to another Democrat. And I think he spent more money than any race in the country. He may still be doing it on this one. And I heard an ad that david trone has a problem he's been arrested three times once for criminal whatever the hell and um it's just unbelievable i don't know anything about what it's about and then of course he comes on with these happy happy, dippy happy dippy kind of ads uh about all of his accomplishments on the other side and he'll probably win because it's a blue seat but um and then i'm hearing similar ones in the other direction against um Uh, Barbara Comstock, who is a friend and and who I like. And, you know, my big fear, uh, given where I come from in the party, is that we will continue kind of the losing streak of moderates. You know, in the last cycle, um, all of the moderate Republicans in the Virginia uh, legislature were kicked out, and that was a big loss. And uh, my fear is that the people, many of those who are the most vulnerable today in this cycle are moderate Republicans, so...
0: Oh, I mean, yeah, and moderate <laughs> here in Indiana, moderate Modern Democrats are. are de- I mean, Donnelly's yeah. on the hot seat. So, yeah. I, 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 uh, I think the Senate, the Republicans are going to retain it, and I can't. I can't, yeah, I think I can't that's probably right. Yeah, I can't predict the House because I haven't dug into the individual districts and looked at the Cook Political Report and read what's going on, and it really matters what's on the ground. But I will say. That the the increased voter turnout. I think Trump has done a good job of convincing Republicans that every election from here on out is about survival. The, the in all yeah. of civil all of civilization depends on you winning this election. The conservative press, especially the fringy press, which is why the liberals are so eager to get rid of it, make re- motivate Republicans by making them think that there's a crisis of their survival if they don't get out and vote and you know i was talking to a democratic friend on the house and she's or he was like okay yeah right L- the left controls everything we're not in control uh, uh, we're not in control of the senate of the house of the courts of the presidency and i said yeah that should cause some self-reflection because you have the culture you have the media you have hollywood you have you have the universities and yeah. yet you're not winning at the ballot box and so they're they're easy instead of self reflection it's it's gerrymandering which is a legitimate yeah. problem but they don't understand that their version of politics is just not something that most americans really want as you saw with that atlantic i don't know if you saw the atlantic uh, identity politics survey in you know, Fukuyama coming out against identity politics and it's like 80% of americans don't like what they're actually providing in terms of alternatives they're not giving alternatives they're saying he's bad so vote for us and we'll be better and it's like no we remember obama and clinton and we're not fans of that so all right well i guess uh i've left you speechless you did
1: i i completely <laughs> lost your signal
0: uh, that's, that's okay. one of the
1: problems <laughs> <laughs> living down here you might have to edit this little section for everybody yeah I might <laughs> so, I might leave it in because anyway, it was it was I, it was kind of funny
0: know. uh yeah so, <laughs> so yeah I just I think Republicans are Republican turnouts gonna be really high and then what's crazy is that what you're gonna see from the left if they don't win the house and the Senate or if they win only one it's gonna be full- scale. The Republicans stole this in Georgia. The Republicans stole this at the ballot box. They purged the voter rolls. They gerrymandered. It's like there there is absolute truth to a lot of that. But at the same time, it is the same argument. That, Absolutely. It, it's the same argument that chilled me to the bone that Trump made. I'm not going to accept the results of this election and Democrats just cannot accept that Hillary lost. They're not going to accept the loss here. They're not going to accept the loss if Trump gets reelected and they're just kind of perpetuating their own crisis of democracy when they don't do their own level of self-reflection and go, maybe we are the problem. Maybe we're not offering good solutions. Maybe well, the government's I do not think the there answer. are some See, I do Hello. I think we may have uh, lost the signal here.
1: I don't know if you can hear me now, Chris.
0: Okay, there we go. Now you're back.
1: You got me again. Yep. okay you got me yep S- says it's uh, unstable
0: yeah so just go right into your answer because we didn't hear anything that you said
1: yeah, well, yeah, no yeah and i I didn't hear anything in your question <laughs> okay <laughs> but ba- what I was gonna say basically is my question that, was I do think they're real questions that this election
0: yep there you go you
1: okay you hear me now mm-hmm okay so I think the gist of your question I where I come from is this election is going to be all about turnout. I think there are real legitimate questions in Georgia in some of these places. Um, uh, And I, there's actually absolutely a conflict and I don't mean to accuse the, the the Republican in that race, but he is in a conflict position. He should have resigned a long time ago before he ran. Um, So uh, it is about turnout. Uh, I don't think the Democrats have a lot of animating issues. Um, uh, I think you're right. Republican and Democrat turnout is going to go up. Um, I think the big issue is are there going to be more uh, suburban women that, you know, and I mean that as a broad demographic who come out, uh, and that's going to be interesting. I mentioned the moderate Republicans. Um, by moderate, I, I do mean people who are willing to try to talk to the other side and who are actually interested in making sausage which is really what Washington is supposed to be about, a legislative process. So uh, they're not moderate in a lot of issues. So can you hear me now? Uh, yeah, th- I heard all that. It was great. Yeah, I get. Feels, I feels feels like one of those phone ads, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. Uh, so let So me, so, let, so I'm wondering if uh, we. W- let me know when, now uh, when you're ready to talk about food, by the way. that's I'm ready. Uh, I'm ready. ready to, I was just
0: about to, to ask. So on the show, you know, everybody ends up visiting D.C. at one point or another. I uh, yeah. may be there in February for Liberty Con. I have not decided if I'm going to spend the money yet. Well, but, hopefully you're here before that. Uh, yeah. Liberty Con. I don't know if it's in January or February, but um, yeah, I'm I I love going to DC and DC has great restaurants and nobody loves to eat and drink more than Rob Cortell. So he <laughs> we have a series we have a segment here on the show called The Diner's Guide to DC. And so with that without further ado, please explain to the folks what your recommendations for food, drink, entertainment are when they visit the nation's capital.
1: Well, what we're, what I'm going to do today is actually recommend that folks uh, go to um, uh, a website called Bib Gourmand, uh, G-O-U-R-M-A-N-D. Um, so the Michelin, I'm sure you've all heard of Michelin stars. Um, Michelin, of course, gives stars to really highly rated restaurants, and we have a number of those in Washington. But for most people... Um, what you really want to look for is what they call their Bib Gourmand, B-I-B, G-O-U-R-M-A-N-D, and they added 19 new restaurants in Washington to their list of 21 or so from the year before. So, Washington is finally being recognized for having some really good and interesting food, and uh, and these are restaurants which are, by definition, affordable. Um, you know, you can, uh, you, you have to be able to order two courses and a glass of wine or dessert for $40 or less. And so, uh, <clears throat> they include uh, uh, a Filipino restaurant, Bad Saint, and uh, Chili Chilcano, or One Chloe, which I, is fabulous down at the uh, waterfront. Uh, there's a vegan restaurant, Fancy Radish, um, uh, just a whole lot of very interesting restaurants. So, uh, you want to go to uh, uh, a website called dcist, dcist.com uh, slash 2018 slash 09 slash bib underscore gourmand underscore 2018 underscore DC uh, or just go to dcist.com and look for bib gourmand and uh, that'll give you a really good starting place.
0: Excellent. Yeah, if you send me that link, I'll put it in the in the description and then people can just go press the button we'll do do it it. yeah we'll do it all right very good so uh any final thoughts on this episode for for the folks out there in america
1: i'm not taking bets on this election uh but i am still uh predicting the houses will not change
0: that's a bold prediction Right. <laughs> <laughs> Our, All right. Rob, thanks so much. It's been great to talk to you. And then uh, hopefully we'll get to talk here uh, in the next couple weeks and do well, a little recap of what happened. Dissect this next week. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, we will talk to you soon. And thanks so much. All right. Thanks. You have a good one.